Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Well, I'll quickly pray just before we get into this passage. Why don't you join me? Bow our heads. Heavenly Father, how amazing that you have spoken to us. How amazing that you have thought about us. We thank you for this. We thank you for your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand it. We pray this in Jesus' precious, precious name. Amen. Brilliant. Well, the tree is up. Doesn't it look awesome? I don't know if you've got one up at home. We have. The decorations are out. The Christmas CDs, I assure you, have been played multiple times. The advent calendars are now half eaten. Christmas is well and truly upon us. Now, it happens every year, and yet it seems to come around so quickly. For me, it's always a surprise. I mean, do you know it's only 12 days until Christmas? 12 days, Steve. 12 days, mate. Have you got everything ready? Have you bought your mum's Christmas present, fellas? (laughs) Have you wrapped them? Have you been to the German markets? Have you prepared the food shop? And are you excited about seeing your family and your friends and finally getting some time off work? And of course the mini cheddars, the ultimate expression of festive decadence wrapped up in a perfect yellow bag. There's a lot to look forward to at Christmas, isn't there? I don't know if you notice, I love mini cheddars. There's a lot to look forward to at Christmas. It's a time for feeling merry and a time for feeling glad and a time for feeling joyful. And we really spend the whole month looking forward to that particular day, don't we? We count down to it because we're hoping for a certain present, We're hoping to spend time with our loved ones, hoping to enjoy a great meal, hoping for a moment to rest, maybe. We look forward to it. We do things now in preparation for that day, like the present wrapping. We live in the wake of that coming day for the whole preceding month. And why do we do that? Because of the vision of that day, the vision of what Christmas Day means to us personally, the vision of what Christmas Day might bring to us. The vision of that meal or that present, that time with that particular person. That vision captivates our hopes and it fills our imagination and it informs our actions. So vision is a powerful thing. It's not just an image. It's not just a picture. It's tangible. It's believable. You could almost touch a vision A vision reaches into our most inner recesses and somehow it connects. A vision somehow accesses our deepest desires and our hopes and then we build our lives upon that vision. We work towards that vision and we strive for that vision. We hope in that vision. And it's not just Christmas, we all have them. They motivate and drive our whole lives. And if we can get the things that we've built our lives upon, the things that we've oriented our existence around, then we'll be complete. We'll be happy, we'll be joyful, we'll feel alive, or so we hope. Now Isaiah had a vision. This whole massive book is a collection of visions. He had lots of them. But in chapter 35, he had a vision of a future day that like the Christmas day that we all dream of, is full of life and hope and joy. Look with me again at it. Verse 1, the desert 
and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. This is a a vision, a picture of a desert transformed into a, a lush garden oasis. Now, don't miss what's going on here. I'm a city person. I've not really spent much time in nature. I mean, I was a Cub Scout, but it was a long time ago now. Um, I couldn't even say the word crocus until it was just read out for us, so I thought it was crocus, but let's, let's move on from that. <laughs> let's, let's really dig into this, because sometimes we can just go over it. It's a vision of creation restored, nature renewed. And because this is a vision, because it's poetry, we're not supposed to be looking for a literal desert where this is going to happen. We're to infer the themes, get the vibes that this this picture is giving us and and, and this text is conveying to us and then apply it. A thirsty place that is finally quenched. A dry place that is brought to life. It's not just that this desert is renewed either. It's glorious, it's magnificent, it's joyful. And we're given these details to help us get that sense. This desert wilderness will be glad. I don't know if you've ever met a glad wilderness or a glad barren wasteland. Those images don't go together, do they? What's going on? it's, It's not just glad, it's like a flower that's going to burst into bloom. It's going to be given the glory and splendor of Lebanon and Mount Carmel and Sharon. These are sumptuous, gorgeous, fertile lands. That's what's happening here. Something that was a wasteland turned into something wonderful. But how? How's this going to happen? All verse 2. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. How? They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The mere sight of God, whom Isaiah was terrified to look upon in chapter 6, will spur this desert wilderness into joyful singing. We were singing about it in Joy to the World, weren't we? A glimpse of his glory and splendor will erupt this barren wasteland into abundant life. And who does this desert represent? Verses 9 and 10 show us that it's the redeemed or those whom the Lord has rescued. So it's his people. Notice that the rescued and the redeemed are also singing because the Lord has renewed them. He's transformed them. So back into verse 2, God's people, this rescued and redeemed bunch, this desert wasteland, they see the glory and the splendor of God. And they are then given glory and splendor in return. And they rejoice. And why is that? Why are they given that glory and splendor? Well, it's because something has happened. Something happened when they saw God. And verses 3 and 4 help us to delve into that. Verse 3, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. Hearts are reinforced. Knees are supported. Hands are emboldened. Why? Well, again, it's because they see God. According to Old Testament scholar Alec Matia, a perhaps fuller sense of verse 4 were to end 
like this. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, behold your God. And as they see God, as they behold him, their spirits are lifted. Their fear and their fragility is replaced by something. They have something bigger on the horizon. They have a new vision, and it gives them hope. Verse 4, behold your God. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. See, they don't just behold God. They behold him as he willingly identifies as their God, bringing vengeance for the wrongs suffered by them and retribution for the wrongs done to them. He's going to come to save them. What will that salvation look like? It's not just deliverance from oppression. It's deliverance from decay, decay and fragility, from suffering and brokenness. Isaiah goes on, blind eyes and deaf ears are opened, cripples start leaping around, mutes are suddenly singing. Why? For joy. Where there was death, life is going to sprout. Where there were threats, tranquility will reign. They will not only walk with God, but they will live with him, safe, secure, satisfied forever. Just imagine it for one moment. Just, Just imagine it. No sorrow, no sighing, only singing, overtaken with gladness and joy. Don't we want to live in a world like that? Don't we want to live in a world where we're not afraid of muggings in Fallowfield or terrorism in France? Don't we want to live in a world where wrongs are punished, corruption is exposed, the vulnerable are protected, the needy are fed? Don't we want to live in a world where our happiness is not at the expense of children on the other side of the world? Isn't that what we actually want? Isn't that what we hope for every Christmas? Peace, joy, goodwill to all men. That's Isaiah's vision. That's what he sees. So why don't we live in that kind of a world? Why don't we experience it and know that kind of a world? Why don't we live in that kind of a world if we all want it? How does that work? Because more than we want peace and joy for all people, we want peace and joy for ourselves. When I was born 30 years ago, hard to believe, I know, there were 4.8 billion people on the planet, according to the BBC, and now there are 7.3 billion people on the planet. And the West consumes double the resources of the rest of the world, and in 15 years' time, we will need the equivalent of two Earths to support ourselves as a race. We can't all live like kings. We can't all have it all, all the time. Something's going to have to give. And so while we all worldwide seek our own happiness at any cost, some are going to miss out. Many are going to suffer. Many will be hungry and many will do without. Many will be trodden down. Because we want our own happiness more than anything else. Because we're self-absorbed. The overriding ethic of our age is this. Do whatever makes you happy. Anything that challenges that is the ultimate evil. The ultimate crime. So all the visions, the hopes, and the the dreams that we have and that we relentlessly 
thirst and strive for and seek to build ourselves around? Well, they're built around our own happiness. Just think about this, 7.3 billion people fighting to come out on top. And that's not a surprise to us. You know, we believe, don't we, or we're told, dog eat dog, natural selection, survival of the fittest, look after number one, me first. That's the natural order of the world that we live in, right? We're all self-absorbed. So how come deep down we don't buy it if that's the natural order of things? How come deep down we long for something more if that's what's natural to us? Why do our souls ache for something better and something deeper? Why do we long to leave our children a better place? Because we know that this way of life leaves us feeling empty. We know that whatever we try to use to plug that hole inside of ourselves, it doesn't work. And we have these fleeting moments of joy, but they're not lasting. We know what gladness is, we have tasted it, but it always finds a way to evade us. There are times when we feel alive and feel connected to something profound, but it always manages to feel broken again somewhere down the road. In 1922, the poet and literary critic T.S. Eliot wrote, These fragments I have shored against my ruins. These fragments I've shored against my ruins. And what he was getting at was this. All the things that we have compiled, created, consumed, the fragments of our lives, the things that we have sought to drink deeply from, you know, good things, things like our children and our lovers, possessions, friends, careers, success, reputations, all these things are just fragmented attempts to... We are just empty ruins. Eliot understood that there is something barren and shallow about human existence. That something is missing. That we are so often hollow and run down. And he was saying, you know, we've got to get all these fragments together. Okay, step back. See them as a whole so that we can finally see ourselves for what we are. So let's do that. Let's, let's step back from ourselves for a moment and just try and hold together our lives up until this point. As we step back from ourselves and, and look at all the experiences that we've collected, look at the lives that we've lived, we can see better what we're heading towards. We can see better what we've achieved as we've chased our visions and our hopes and our dreams through the years. So survey yourself. Look at the fragments of your experiences and memories. Look at the things that you've hoped in, the things that you've longed for, the things that you've lived for. Have those visions delivered? Has the life you've lived given you lasting joy? Have the things that you've built yourselves on left you feeling hopeful or desolate? Do you feel alive? Or like Elliot, do you feel like ruins. According to Isaiah, that's the human condition. We are a desert wilderness, a void, lifeless, hopeless, dry, thirsty. Is that how you feel? 
when we have those increasingly few moments where our minds are silent, where we don't have Facebook and Twitter and the TV just screaming in our heads, when we're alone with ourselves for those brief moments, do you feel alive? Are you really happy? Do you feel content? A life lived with ourselves at the core is a shallow and empty husk of an existence, according to Isaiah. Just as William Yates wrote almost 100 years ago now, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. The way of humanity to hope in these temporal things, it can't hold. It cannot hold the weight of our souls. It leads to crushing disappointment every time somewhere down the line things will eventually fall apart. And the main concern about all this is that we don't know any other way to live, do we? It's like the natural order of things. We all live like this. We see it in our use of social media. There's my Facebook profile page. I've only got one friend. It's Joe Byrne. <laughs> see, Facebook and Twitter and social media, if you use it, they're like a, an extension of ourselves. You know, it's, it's ourselves putting ourselves out there in the public domain. We present the versions of ourselves that we wish were true. But just look at what you put out there. What does your use of social media suggest is important to, to you? For most of us, our Facebook profile suggests that the thing that is most important to us is ourselves. Our Twitter account suggests that we are completely self-absorbed. And when others don't accept us and we don't get that like, we are completely crushed. Because the center cannot hold. What was the point of that 40-minute workout if I only got one like? You may not be a social media user, so think about your interactions with others instead. I think about my granddad, okay, and how he has allowed himself to become so self-absorbed and selfish that all of the interactions his entire family have with him are painful. They're all about him. And he's a wealthy man. He's got everything that he probably ever wanted. He's lived in Spain. Commanded respect as an officer in the Royal Navy. But he's at the end of his life now. And he can't take his wealth with him. And he's bitter. And even though my whole family calls him, spends time with him all the time, and love him, he's not happy. He can't enjoy us because he's too preoccupied with himself. He's not happy. He's living life, but what kind of a life is it? He's a parched land. See, self-absorption distorts and corrupts the good things that we've been given to enjoy. It's a life of shallow relationships and strife and selfishness. It's no way to live, is it? The truly frightening thing about all this is that it doesn't end when we die. We'll spend eternity being the people that we spent our lives becoming. That goes for all of us, Christians in this room as well. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that only the redeemed will walk with God and spend eternity with him. The wicked and the unclean people that Isaiah talks about is referring to people who deny God in their everyday existence. People who live with no reference to God in their everyday lives. People who will behold something someone, some other vision, build their lives on it that is not God. People who are self-absorbed will not know life. They will be thirsty forever. And they will be thirsty for all eternity. 
because God will give them what they spent their whole lives seeking, a life without him. And that, friends, is a barren desert wasteland. Jesus actually tells a parable about a rich man who had it all, but when he died, he was thirsty and he couldn't get a drink. So you have to ask yourself, what do you want? Where are you heading? You know, it's like when you go on holiday. You know, you get ready, don't you? You get ready for where you're going. You know where you're going, so you spend time packing your bag. Nobody goes to Antarctica and packs a suitcase full of swimming trunks, you know, and wife beaters. Because they know where they're going, so they're getting ready for it now. Where do you want to go? What is your life suggesting that you're getting ready for? Are you weary and tired? Are you thirsty? Do you feel like a dry and dusty desert? Do you feel feeble and fearful? Well, if so, Isaiah has got the sweetest news for you, friends. He's got the sweetest news. He says in verse 4, Be strong, do not fear, behold your God. See, Isaiah's solution is to give us a better vision is to give us something better to behold, a glimpse of glory and splendor. And it's the Lord God himself. It's the Lord of hosts, the mighty one. You know, what is it that caused that desert to bloom? Well, it was seeing the glory of God. What is it that gives hope to the feeble and fearful hearts? Well, it's beholding God. What is it that will restore us and quench our thirst? It's looking at God, hoping for the day when he will come to save What must God be like if the mere sight of him will transform people from death to life? What must he be like? And that's the way of God. The way of God is is to take the barren and make it abundant. I don't know what you think about him, but that is what he's all about. Solution to all the problems that stem from our self-absorption is to become self-forgetful. To forget ourselves and look at him. And this is not a new message. When Moses met with God and was fearful, God told Moses his, his name. And he said, I am. Moses, don't worry about what you are. Don't worry about what you're not. Don't be centered on yourself. Be centered on me because I am. He said to Moses, forget yourself and behold your God. There's a meeting and a conversation that turned Moses' life around. Isaiah had a moment like this in chapter 6. He beheld God, and he was terrified. But it changed his life, turned him around. The Apostle Paul, similar experience, was walking to Damascus to go and kill some more Christians, and he encountered God. He beheld the living Lord Jesus, and it completely flipped his life around. Martin Luther great German preacher from the Reformation hundreds of years ago, said salvation is God clearing away this tangled undergrowth of self-absorption forever. Salvation is God clearing away this tangled undergrowth of self-absorption forever. You see, when we forget ourselves and rather look at God, when we behold him, we're going to be transformed. We're given a glimpse of his glory. And And it's like when you go out of the city 
and you go to a place where there aren't that many lights and you can see the stars really clearly and it takes your breath away because for a moment you just forget yourself and you are reminded that there are magnificent, transcendent truths out there. Things that are bigger than us, things that we can't just explain. Emotions that are elicited. It's like when you see the Grand Canyon or the Giant's Causeway, something so magnificent that you can't stop yourself from looking at it, from beholding it, just trying to take it in. You forget yourself. And in those moments, we are transported away from ourselves, even if just for that tiny amount of time, and we experience a stillness, a peace, because we're not looking at ourselves anymore. And just briefly, we feel alive in a way that we so seldom experience in the busyness of worrying and striving and straining. And in those moments, we get a foretaste, a mere morsel, an echo of the freedom and the life that will flow from beholding God. Because all of creation declares his glory. And you might be thinking, well, that's all well and good, but what makes you so sure that your God is the right one? Why should I be beholding your God instead of somebody else's? It's a good question. And the answer is because of who Jesus Christ is. See, Isaiah sees a time when God would come to earth and save his people. The eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the death unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongues will shout for joy, and Jesus Christ did all those things, and he did more. But that wasn't the most glorious and majestic thing about Jesus Christ, actually. Just, just consider who he was. He was the royal son of the creator of the cosmos, the king of heaven. And he came down to earth, and as we've sang, limitless power and strength, yet he entered the world vulnerable. And he didn't just enter the world vulnerable, he entered the world with nothing. He was born in squalid poverty. His first cop was a feeding trough. He was homeless in his adult life. He was reviled and betrayed, killed as a criminal on a Roman cross. And he could have stopped it any time he wanted. He didn't have to do any of that. He chose to go ahead with it. Why? Why would the most powerful being in the cosmos subject himself to that kind of life? Because as we see in verse 4, he came to save people. Why didn't he come with vengeance or divine retribution in the first place? Because he came to bear it instead. See, our ignorance of God doesn't just damage us and leave us dry and thirsty. It carries a death sentence. It's high treason, the worst of crimes. And Jesus came to bear that destiny for us. Jesus is the kind of king, the kind of God, who sees us in our squalor and lifts us up, longs to get us out of it. He's gentle and generous despite his limitless strength and power. No one's going to win a fight with Jesus. But he's gentle. And that is what makes him glorious. He invites us to come and see what he's all about. Jesus called all who are thirsty. He said, come to me, drink. Live as a 
Rivers of living water will flow out of your belly. That's what Isaiah talks about here, isn't it? Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. If you're a wilderness, don't you want water to be overflowing with you? Jesus doesn't promise you a morsel. He promises you an overflowing well, deeper than you could ever imagine. That's the kind of God that he is. You don't deserve it. That's what he'll give you. He'll quench your thirst. He called everyone who was weary to come to him. He'll give you ultimate rest. You don't have to work for Jesus' approval. You don't have to work to earn this. He'll give it to you. He calls everybody who's empty and desolate inside, and he offers them life to the full. That's what he said. I've come so that they may have life. He offers us a chance to be remade, renewed, restored, and released from our self-made bondage. And isn't that the kind of God that you want to follow? Ultimately, it all comes down to hope. Alec Matea, who I mentioned earlier, says, hope is the cordial the people of God need to keep them going. We need hope to keep us going. Christian, may you never stop seeking to behold our God with all your might day after day. Because this is the vision that gives us life. And if you feel like your life is lost purpose and lacks joy let me ask you what are you beholding what are you finding most precious what are you setting your hopes on where are you heading what is everything about your life oriented around Martin Luther wrote this let it not be tedious to you if we repeat these things that at other times we teach and preach and sing and set forth in writing it cannot be beaten into our ears too much yes Though we learn it and understand it well, still no one takes hold of it perfectly or believes it with all his heart. So frail a thing is our flesh and so disobedient to the Spirit. Let us never stop beholding our God. Apostle Paul says the same things in Colossians chapter 2. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith and overflowing with thankfulness. If you're rooted in him, you will overflow with thankfulness. Notice how Isaiah describes us before Jesus comes to us. Lifeless, a scorched desert, a wasteland, blind, deaf, lame, mute. We don't offer him anything. We don't contribute anything. We are completely helpless. And Tim Keller reminds us that the gospel, this good news of life that God offers us, it's not about something that we do but about something that has been done for us. Believing in Christ does not mean that we are forgiven of our past, get a new start in life, and then simply have to try harder to live better than we did before. Because if that's our mindset, then we're putting our faith in ourselves again. We've become our own saviour. In effect, we're looking at ourselves instead of beholding Jesus. Saving faith is an act of the will in which we rest in Jesus. It's an act of the will in which we rest in him. We give ourselves wholly to him because he gave himself wholly for us. And when we lose sight of him, that's when we want to give up. And you may be thinking, Christians don't always seem that happy. Their lives aren't perfect. You yourself might be a Christian and you might be thinking, I follow Jesus and I feel feeble. I feel weak and I feel incomplete. 
You might be a Christian and depressed. You might be really struggling. And you might be thinking, how does that fit with what Isaiah is talking about here? Does that mean there's something wrong with me? Well, no, it doesn't. If we look at Jesus' life, he suffered. Life wasn't perfect for him. And he didn't promise it would be perfect for us, not until he came back. You see, we're also waiting for a day. We are waiting for him to return, to come and bring us into the fullness of his joy and to bring that vengeance upon all those who would not turn to him. We know it partially now, but on that day, we'll know it fully. The hope he gives us does transform the way that we deal with tragedy and pain in this world now because we know that it's temporary it gives us that perspective we know that there really is a better tomorrow coming we really know that there is something on the horizon that is bright amidst the darkness we can carry on because we're looking forward to that day the ultimate christmas day when christ returns don't be disheartened if you suffer don't be crushed if you know more tears than smiles right now your god will come for you And he will crown your head with everlasting joy. Today, behold your God in you. Know that a day is coming when everlasting joy will be your common experience. Gladness and joy will overtake you. Live for that day. Long for that day with all your might. Because a life without Jesus Christ is an empty life. It's doomed to forever let us down. Some of the things that we replace Jesus with may be the sweetest and most delicious experiences of our lives, but they will always fade and always leave us feeling broken and dirty afterwards. A life without Jesus Christ at its center is an arid wasteland. C.S. Lewis in Narnia put it like this. It's like an eternal winter where Christmas never comes. Lay aside your life so that you may finally start living. So you who are thirsty, you who are weary, you who are empty, you who are fearful, be glad, be joyful, be strong, don't fear. Behold your God. Behold your God. Let's pray. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will will rejoice and blossom. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this vision. So much we are. We thank you for this picture of what our lives could be. And we pray so very much that you would make Jesus so compelling to us, so beautiful to us, that we wish never to tear our eyes away from him. We pray that we would be captivated just by looking at who he is, looking at what he did, how he acts, how he cares for us now. Transform the way that we experience this world now, Lord, we pray. Give us that hope. And may we reflect it to others so that we can share this glorious, glorious hope with them. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.